I think before we turn to John 19, I'd like for us to read that psalm that we just sang, Psalm 2. It is so fitting to the context of what we preach this morning regarding our Lord's being brought before the kings and the rulers of this world, being delivered up to the wicked hands of the heathen by his own house of Israel. This is one of the, my favorites of all the Bible because it's so contemporary and it covers the subject of the place of Jesus Christ in this world and the various perspectives that men have toward him and the importance, the supreme importance of what we do in response to the claims of Christ in our lives. Psalm 2 Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. Then will he speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will tell of the decree. Jehovah said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath will soon be kindled. Blessed are all they that take refuge in him. Please again join me as we turn to the Lord in prayer together. Our Father, we're glad this morning that the, the world is not dependent upon us, upon the exercise of our gifts, or upon our goodness. O oh Lord, were this task to be laid upon these shoulders without grace from heaven and without the promise of blessing for Christ's sake, and without the strength of your Spirit, I would not presume to attempt to unfurl and to expound the matters before us. We cry to you, therefore, O God of grace and help, Jehovah Jireh, that you would come and be our help and our strength. We're aware, O Lord, that were you to render to us what we've deserved, and were you to reward us according to our own doings, you would utterly forsake us. 
But we come not in our own name, our God and Father. We come in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And though it has the tinge of selfishness with it, we would come bearing his name upon our breast, upon our foreheads and the palms of our hands. We would come into your presence with his robes of righteousness upon us. We would come, O Lord, hidden from your wrath, hidden from that which we deserve, hidden in the blood of Jesus. Oh God, thank you for such a provision. Thank you that we may so come. Thank you that there is no need any longer for any to approach you with the kind of dread and fear that we once had. Thank you that there is no need for us to run and hide from you, but that we may come boldly through the new and living way which is open to us through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, O God, for our Redeemer. And for his sake now, do not unto us, but unto your own name get glory, and cause even the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of the cross, to give credence and praise to your name as they observe your power that goes forth today, not for our sakes, but for the sake of him who purchased to himself that kingdom which you anciently provided him and promised him. O Lord, may today in this place and throughout the earth where the old truths are preached, may there be multitudes added to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And may he indeed be loved and kissed by many today who have never seen him as the Savior before. And may there be none of us who leave here today not having settled it with him. Do a work of grace among us and within us. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake we pray. Help us preach and help us hear as we ought. For we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Now please turn with me to the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John. As we undertake to open up this passage of Scripture regarding the further treatment of Jesus on trial, there is so much in this material that we can take literally months to study it. It is my intention this morning just to survey it and to concentrate with you on some of the various perspectives that may be held as we look at Christ in this trial before Pontius Pilate. I want us in the first place to consider the perspective of Pilate and next the perspective of the Jewish people who delivered the Lord Jesus up to Pilate. In the third place I want us to consider the perspective of heaven, God's perspective, Christ's perspective on this event and growing out of that heavenly perspective to consider briefly something of the doctrine of the kingdom of Jesus Christ as it's unveiled and hinted at in this section of scripture and then the result of that kingdom and the work of Christ through this trial and finally to ask you to ask the question and to probe our consciences if we may regarding what is our perspective on these events that are laid out before us 
in this portion of God's Word. First of all, consider with me the perspective of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, as you know, was the procurator of Judea, the governor, appointed by the Caesar, which would have been Tiberius Caesar at this time. Pontius Pilate had succeeded several other procurators of Judea and was typical of them. They were usually men of diplomacy, men who knew how to manipulate men, who knew how to get along, men typically Roman with their pride and their pomp, their uh, great vanity regarding the Roman system. Rome had indeed done many wonderful things for the world, The world was dwelling at peace worldwide under Roman rule. It was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The world, much of it civilized, had been connected with Roman roads and Roman engineering. And many of the bridges were already being developed and had been developed by the Roman engineering mind. Roman jurisprudence, though, was one of the highest things in uh, the pantheon of pride that the Romans pointed to, their system of law and their concept of justice. And in a heathen world, it was a high system. Much of Roman jurisprudence has found its way into American law, though we're now finding ourselves in almost utter chaos regarding what the law is. There's much to give thanks to the Romans for. Pontius Pilate represented fully this perspective of Rome. He was one of the men of the world. He is among those whom Psalm 2 would address, the kings of the earth. He is a ruler of this world, the heathen of this world. And heathen we mean those who are outside the pale of clear light, those who have not seen or thought of the claims of the Creator upon their consciences, who live according to their own traditions, according to their own habits and customs, and largely according to their own pleasures, conveniences, and lusts. Now this Pontius Pilate is known in history as having been uh, a relatively self-serving and self-seeking man, which we would expect from these Romans. This man was wise in rule and apparently did a fairly good job of ruling among the Jews. And in this case, we can see much to be learned from him and his conduct and his character in the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's an interesting piece of history that I discovered in studying this that I'd like to pass on to you. And it'll come back in our study this morning, I trust, and you'll see another point of extreme irony in the attitude and practice of the people of Judea against the Lord Jesus. Pilate had been the first governor who had introduced to Judea, or Palestine as we would call it today, the image of Caesar on the banners of the soldiers. In other words, when the soldiers of Rome came into Jerusalem in occupying it, and when they uh, exchanged the guard and the cohort, they wore the banner at the head of uh, of the cohort, and uh, the guidon was carried with a flag at the top, which... Uh, up until Pilate's time, had never been allowed to have Caesar's image on it. In respect to the Jews, 
who did not want that image or any image of a man who did not want to have a part of the worship of the emperor, they had not brought it in, but Pilate did. He introduced the image of Caesar to Judea. He did it by night. He brought it in under cloak of darkness. But then when the daylight came and people began to notice that now these Roman soldiers have the image of Caesar himself on these banners, they protested. And they protested it vehemently. And they continued to protest and went up to where Pontius Pilate was staying at Caesarea. And they uh, appealed to him at his palace there. And they asked him to get rid of those incense, to remove those images. They would not have that in their land. It was ill unlawful, they said, to have images of anything or anybody of, among them. Well, Pilate's response was interesting. He sent his army, he was in this large judgment seat, and it was seated in the center of the city, and in such a way that the whole cohort, or the armed forces, could be hidden from the multitude while he was passing judgment. And he had his armed forces to surround the people, and at a certain point in their increasingly vehement demands, they stepped out of the shadows, surrounding the multitude, and he declared an ultimatum. He told the people, if you continue another moment bothering me with this business, we're going to put you to death. You're all dead. Either disband or die. Guess what their response was? They all laid down on the ground and bared their necks and said, put us to death. We will not do anything to deny our allegiance to the law of God. We will not worship Caesar. We'll not let Caesar be a king who supplants the God of heaven. Pilate was so moved by this display that he removed the images from Judea in order to keep these people happy. And also he was gaining respect for their strictness and their consistency in their religion. You already know, you already see the irony, don't you? Well, let's look at Pilate for a minute. In this account, we've, we can see something in Pilate of a sense of duty. You can note his behavior throughout this trial as being feeling a sense of responsibility for the peaceful affairs going on in Palestine. The man makes every effort, it seems, to satisfy everybody. He wants to satisfy the demands of this mob led by the chief priests and the scribes who cry out, crucify him, crucify him. He wants to appease them. But on the same token, he knows that it's his duty to carry out justice. And he examines the Lord to find if there's any ground to these accusations. And you know he doesn't find any. And faithfully, he reports back, I find no fault in him. He sends him to Herod, though in our text it's not included. In another gospel we read that when he found out Jesus was from Galilee, he sent him to Herod. Well, history tells us that Herod and Pilate had been enemies, and the scripture says that. And the probability of the reason for that enmity was that previously Pilate had killed a group of Galileans who had come to offer sacrifices during a festival. And in the midst of the temple, as they were offering sacrifices, Pilate had mingled their blood with their sacrifices. Jesus refers to that in one of his uh, discourses. Pilate had killed some who were under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. And Herod resented that. 
Instead of sending them to him for him to judge them, Pilate killed them. So they've been enemies. You know that the result of this affair made them friends again because Pilate sent Jesus to Herod to give him a chance to take care of this man from Galilee who was properly under his jurisdiction. And that's how they regained friendship. Well, he went to Herod, and Herod, all he did with him was ridicule him. He found no crime. He just laughed him off and sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate then examined him again and found no crime in him worthy of death. Still wanting to please the people, but not wanting to put to death an innocent man, you see the sense of duty. And if you look at the gospel accounts, you'll see Pilate struggling with this issue. He's not just insensitive to some concept of justice. He does have a sense of duty, and he knows he's got to answer to Caesar about whether he's going to let a riot go on or let this thing get out of hand. He's sensitive to duty. He also is sensitive to justice. He desires to, to proceed according to the dictates of Roman law. He's an honest legal mind in that sense. Having sent to Herod, perhaps to avoid the decision himself, or perhaps uh, to let a, a Jew more familiar with the customs of the Jews handle it, or whatever his primary reason, he announces that in verse 4 of our passage that he finds no fault in Jesus. He knew, according to Matthew chapter 27, that they had delivered Jesus for envy. Pilate could see that these people had no claims against him. He could see there was no just reason to put him to death. And so he announced it. He's not going to put this man to death. There's no legal reason. He has a sense of justice. And don't miss that. He is not utterly devoid of a sense of justice. He has a conscience. He has a sense of duty. He has a sense of justice. Let's talk about his conscience. Not to elaborate at length, but he does have a sense of conscience. Verse 8 of chapter 19 gives us a hint. Remember the Jews had just said, we have a law and by that law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard that, it says in verse 8, when Pilate therefore heard this saying, he was the more afraid. Now we've not been told by John previous that he was afraid, but now we're told he was the more afraid. Other gospel writers give us the understanding that Pilate had been struggling with this issue. You remember that his wife had come to him and said, All day I've been having dreams about this man. Don't have anything to do with this righteous man. There's trouble here. And what would have been, what, what man, what Roman, with Roman law on his conscience and with power in his hand, would listen to a silly woman tell him she's had a bad dream? Why would that bother him? Because he has a conscience. He's thinking there may be something going on here that I don't even understand and if you just read this you get that feeling don't you the imagery how it's working how it's developing are you a king then Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world if it were my so my servants would fight Pilate he says I have I come to bear witness of the truth and Pilate says what is truth 
Then he brings him back to the people again and says, Behold the man, I find no fault in him. They demand his crucifixion. He brings him back in a second time, finds no fault in him. They say he made himself a son of God. And Pilate said, brings him back again and says, Who are you? You see what he says there? He was the more afraid. Verse 9, he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Whence are you? Where'd you come from? There's something going on in Pilate's conscience here. The Son of God. This is different from just the King of the Jews. This is not just some... This, you know, there may be something going on here. I don't understand. Who are you? Tell me who you are. Where are you from? What are these claims? Now, you know what I believe? I believe Pilate is typical of every intelligent human being on the face of this globe. What do I mean by that? I want to show you a verse of Scripture. Turn to Romans chapter 1. On our way to church this morning, we heard Pastor Martin on the radio in the Woodstock station. And he brought out this point, not this passage, but he mentioned in his preaching this business about every man's conscience. Knowing in the conscience that evolution is a lie. That the nonsense of our becoming a product of the primordial, primordial ooze or the slime or celestial dust is to every rational human being patent nonsense. But there's a biblical principle beneath that claim that it is patent nonsense to every rational human being. There's a doctrine, there's a theology about that that makes us say it. Romans chapter 1 verse 32 having described the pattern of life and the habit and the attitude of the majority of the men and women of this world and having described down to an almost embarrassing description of the vilest sorts of sexual perversity having listed this sordid list of the sinful habits of our generation he says in verse 32 of these people who, knowing the ordinance of God, that they that practice such things are worthy of death, not only do them, but also consent with them or take pleasure in them that practice them. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Knowing the ordinance of God that they that do such things are worthy of death. What's he saying? He's not describing a Jew who has grown up in Judea with the law of Moses on his lap. He's not describing a man that is worshipped in the temple of God according to God's revealed will who knows about the Creator, who knows about the Judge in Heaven, who knows about the coming Messiah, who has the highlight of God's revelation. He's not talking about that man. He's talking about the man in Rome. He's writing a letter to the Roman church and he's describing what surrounds this church. What they see every day and every Friday and Saturday night. He's describing the way of life of their friends and family who now think it's strange that they don't any longer run in excess of riot with their former friends and who persecute them verbally at least because of their so-called superstitious belief in this strange new God. And he's saying about these pagan, heathen, 
worshippers of the, uh, the polytheistic gods of the pantheon, he's saying of them, they know the ordinance of God that those who practice these things are worthy of death. He lists them disobedience to parents, unthankful, uh, unholy, haters of God. He lists all the characteristics. And he's talking about some of the vilest people in the world who have such a conscience that they think it's right to pervert their own God-given body and use it in opposite form and way than God designed it to be used. And they actually get laws passed designed to dismantle the structure of the nuclear family as all civilized civilization has had it since the beginning and are wanting all of us to subsidize a law that says it's normal to be a pervert. And we're thought to be somehow narrow, strange, new, weird cultists for clinging to an ancient principle of family. May more specifically, men and women made by God for each other. Another picture of patent nonsense to assume that males and females were made obviously and radically different and those differences mean nothing. Who in the world can study fundamental anatomy and think males and females are not supposed to be different and not come to the conclusion that they fit each other by God's creation? Who is so perverted as to think that creation means nothing? Or who is so foolish as to think that accident produced both male and female? What an amazing fool we become professing wisdom in our superior education and then demanding that people's children be put under that in the name of truth. But you see what Romans tells us? These people who have never even seriously considered with their cognitive brain the existence of a God. These people who are so far gone morally that religion is a joke to them, who never pray, who never would darken the door of a house of worship. These people, the Bible says, know the ordinance of God that folks who act this way are worthy of death. That's a drastic statement, isn't it? You thought they were in utter ignorance. We thought they wouldn't act like this if they knew the truth. We thought if somebody just tell them about God, they'll turn away. Just be logical. No, no. The reason they're insane... The reason they are perverted, the reason their minds are reprobate is because they did know God. They saw His creation and they could even detect His eternal power and deity by the things He made. But they didn't want to have Him in their minds because to have Him in their minds is to make them accountable. 
to get him out of the mind leaves it up to them to be animals and do as they feel. And so they did not wish to keep God in their minds, Romans 1 tells us. So God gave them over to a reprobate mind, a mind without God. And yet in the recesses of their darkened hearts, Though they, through loving feelings, are past feeling, though they who have never, uh, who claim to believe in love and mercy have no mercy on others, though they are this way, yet in the recesses of their darkened heart, they know that God hates what they're doing and they're going to answer for it. And their conscience knows that what they're doing deserves the wrath of God, death. That's the Bible doctrine. That is why we Christians can preach the gospel of Christ boldly to people and tell them by looking them in the face and point the finger at the middle of their nose and say, you know you're guilty. Dear brethren, don't you be afraid of telling men they sinned against God and they know it. They'll say, what are you talking about? That's your opinion. Everybody has his own... In their conscience, when they go to bed at night, they know it. They'll never admit it to you. You're not going to have a nice open discussion about it with them. They'll never do that. They're not going to say, you know, I was wondering if anybody knew what was going on in secret. I, 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 yeah, I haven't. No, they're not going to say that. They're going to yell all the louder. I've never had such a thought. God says they have. God says they know the ordinance of God, that they that practice such things are worthy of death. Pilate is one of those men. In the recesses of this man's conscience, he knows there's something more than Rome. And he knows there's a God in heaven. And he knows that that God in heaven is still around. And he knows that somewhere, somehow, that God's going to deal with men. And when he hears there's a man around who claims to be the Son of God, he wants to get to know more about this guy. Where are you from? He has a conscience. He's more afraid. His wife had warned him. This is a righteous man. He tries to relieve himself of guilt by washing his hands ceremonially before all the people and say, his blood be on your hands. I'm not going to have any... There's something going on in this man's conscience. But having said that, it's vital for us to see that that's not enough. It's not enough to have a conscience, even one that's enlightened and even one that's screaming against your behavior. I'm not suggesting that the people who spent all last night in the wee hours of this morning in debauchery were thinking consciously all night how bad they were. They weren't. I'm not suggesting that their conscious processes are fully engaged. That's the worst, that's the last thing that's the case. But even if their consciences were fully engaged and fully enlightened and fully active, that would not be enough. It's not enough to have a sense of justice and to have a sense of knowing what's right and what's wrong. It's not enough to have a sense of duty as Pilate had. That's not enough. In fact, sometimes it's a lot easier not to have it. 
If you want the easy way through this world, get rid of your conscience. Get rid of your sense of justice and your sense of duty. That's the easy way through this world. In the long run, it's not the easy way because the way of the transgressor is hard. But if you want to live without the restraints of fear, then get God and justice and duty and conscience out of your mind. Pilate couldn't get all of it out of his mind. He was tormented. This tormented him. He struggled. One passage says he sought to release him. Tried to figure out a way to let Jesus off the hook. He thought, I'm convinced, he thought that they would take Jesus rather than Barabbas. He really thought, no way they're going to ask for me to release a robber. And another gospel writer says, a seditionist, one who had led a revolution against Rome. The Jews hated Rome. They love to rescue a revolutionary against Rome. No, and it also says he's a murderer. No way these people who have such a high sense of law, these are the people that not very many years ago would not let me bring an ensign into town with Caesar's image on it. They have a strict code. They'll never ask me to release a man who's a murderer, a seditionist, a, a robber. They know better than that. These people have a sense of law, so he makes the proposal, and they surprise him. No, give us Barabbas. Let him go free. How far you go when your conscience gets to where it doesn't want God to rule. You will turn ultimately against every decent influence in your life. Once you start down the road of, of compromising the little things of your conscience, you will eventually call your best righteous friend a heretic. You will begin to turn things upside down and inside out. That is the process of perversion. doesn't always show up in the physical sexual practices. Sometimes it shows up in theology. Where up is down and down is up and black is white and white is black and everything's perverted. It showed up in, in Isaiah. Woe unto them that call good evil and evil good. Pontius, had a, Pontius Pilate had a conscience, but he wasn't enough. There's a clue to this man in Mark chapter 15 where it says in this context he was wishing to content the multitude. Overruling his sense of duty, his sense of conscience, his sense of justice was his desire to please men. He wanted to keep the multitude content. Now you say, well, you can understand that, Pastor. If he didn't do what they were demanding, what might have happened? He would have been accused by Caesar of an insurrection, and the Roman Caesars didn't put up with that. If you let it get out of hand, they replaced you with someone who wouldn't let it get out of hand. But I answer, that is not enough to make me subvert and pervert justice. He should have stood for the truth and for justice. You say, but pastor, if he had, Jesus wouldn't have been crucified. I know all about that. I know this was God's will, ordained of God from eternity. I know there were no accidents this day, but from Pilate's perspective, justice wasn't done because in spite of his conscience and his fears and his trouble and his commitment and conviction that this man is not guilty, 
he gave him up to be crucified in order to please the multitude. Men will pervert duty, obstruct justice, and bludgeon their conscience for convenience in order to keep their position, in order to please men. If you've done that, if you've been on that route, you get off that road and turn around. You're going to destroy your soul playing games with men. It's the reason why you must, when you come to the grips with Jesus Christ and his claims upon your soul, you must not first consult with your father, mother, husband, wife, your tradition, your religion, your philosophy, or whatever else. You must first look to God's word and find out what saith the Lord. It means that ultimately when Christ says, follow me, you don't check the number of fish in your nets. You don't check how many fish you're going to lose if you drop them now and follow him. You don't stop to count uh, all the possibilities of how you can manipulate and play games with him. You don't say, but first, let me plow my oxen. But first, let me bury my father. But first, I married a wife. You stop that. Because when you start that, you're moving away from dealing properly with your soul unto its salvation. Nothing is clearer in the scripture than that. And here's Pilate. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about him. Let us learn what miserable creatures great men are. When they have no high principles within them and no faith in the reality of a God above them. The meanest laborer who has grace and fears God is a nobler being in the eyes of his creator than the king, ruler, or statesman whose first aim it is to please the people. To have one conscience in private and another in public, one rule of duty for our own souls and another for our public actions, to see clearly what is right before God and yet for the sake of popularity to do wrong, this may seem to some both right and politic and statesmanlike and wise but it is a character which no Christian man can ever regard with respect let us pray that our own country may never be without men in high places who have grace to think right and courage to act up to their knowledge without truckling to the opinion of men and what a uh, what an appropriate prayer that is for us this morning in America those who fear God more than man and care for pleasing God more than man, are the best rulers of a nation. And in the long run of years, are always most respected. Men like Pontius Pilate, who are always trimming and compromising, led by popular opinion instead of leading popular opinion. You hear that? Led by popular opinion instead of leading it. What a shame it is that our politicians can't act until they take a poll. Afraid of doing right if it gives offense. Ready to do wrong if it makes them personally popular. Such men are the worst governors that a country can have. They're often God's heavy judgment on a nation because of a nation's sin. Written a century or more ago, it's still true. That's Pontius Pilate's perspective. But look at the perspective of the Jewish people with me. They're called the Jews. That's what John calls them, often in his gospel, the Jews. And what he means by that, the majority of the leaders and the people who follow them. 
the great host of the majority of the Jewish nation are called by John the Jews. And that literally means when John writes it, usually he's referring to those that did not receive the Lord Jesus. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But the Jews, the Jews, brethren, that was not an anti-Semitic statement. It was a statement written by a Semite, whose mommy and daddy were Jews, whose kids were Jews whose wife was a Jew, most of whose friends closest, at least the early portion of his life, were Jews. The scriptures are not anti-Semitic. They're written by Semites. Don't throw that on them. These weren't racial statements. They were true statements. It was a, it was a generalization that was accurate. The general group of the people who called themselves the people of God were not really the people of God. They were hypocrites. They gladly followed their leaders. The populace were fickle. The leaders were hypocrites. These Jews had a perspective. It could be summarized thus. They thought it would do God a service to kill Jesus. You've got to understand this. They had a conscience. They knew down deep somehow this man was ringing truth in their ears. But they thought he was a threat to truth. Somehow they had so convinced their consciences that they really thought God wanted them to put him to death. They didn't try to stone Jesus because they just didn't want to hear the truth. They thought he was corrupting truth. They were convinced that he was perverting the law of Moses when actually he was fulfilling it and explaining it. Not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law, he said, till all be fulfilled. Their traditions were their pride. They only used Moses as a way of getting credence and credibility for their traditions. They quoted Moses, but they worshipped tradition. For the Lord Jesus came and he challenged those traditions, and what did they do? This man is against Moses. They were convinced that he was breaking the law of God. They also accused him of blaspheming God. In verse 7 of our chapter, they said he made himself a son of God. We have a law that people that claim to be the sons of God are to be killed. Capital punishment for blasphemy. Put this man to death. In verse 12 of chapter 19, this man speaks against Caesar. You release him, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone that makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now, they didn't care about that. They spoke against Caesar in the privacy of their homes every night. They raised their kids to despise Caesar and pray for the Messiah to come and kick Caesar out of power and put, put them back in power. But in order to, multi, to manipulate Pilate, they said, Ah, oh, what is Caesar going to think if you let a guy that claims to be king get by with this? You're no friend of Caesar. And Pilate, uh, you know, we will write letters. We'll let, Pilate, we'll let Caesar know about this. They used that. But their perspective is, they really do think this man is a threat to the truth of God. The reason I tell you that, not to confuse you, I want you to understand the dynamics of those that become so sincere in their preaching of error. I want you to understand why they're so believable. I want you to be 
able to deflect and and to think and to discern what you hear in the smorgasbord of philosophy and religion. And we've said it before in this place. Some of the most disarming men of the world are some of the vilest and most erroneous, but they're disarming because they're so sincere. They really believe what they're saying is true. They are convinced, and it gives them more power. Some of you could accuse me of the same thing. Some of some people have. You're a good speaker, some of, a few have said. It's balanced. Uh, you manipulate the crowd with your emotions. Why don't you just stand up like a brick and, and read? Well, brethren, if that's the cause of a preacher, let's just give you the book. You stay home and read. Why did God put this package together? I don't know. But he says that the excellency of the treasure may be an earthen vessel, so you'll not praise man, but praise God. I'm content with that. I love that. It doesn't excuse this earthen vessel, but it certainly frees him up a little bit. So I'm not any longer ashamed of all of my personal uh, quirks and idiosyncrasies. I'm trying to work on some of them for your sake, but I'm who I am, and maybe God will use that, and if some of me comes out in it, I suppose that will help in some way. Now why? Because God has ordained that these kinds of means will end up giving Him glory and not us. But be careful. There are men who use their gifts and who use emotional manipulation of the crowd to convince them of error. How do you know? You must never believe a man just because he's convinced he's right. If I thought that any of you believe what you believe and live the way you live, just because of the technique of our delivery, I would resign now before I would let you go on with that. I don't want that. Neither do you need that. But if you've been with us, you know we don't tie you to our personality. We want you to find out what God has said. These people were very sincere. They were convinced that they were serving God. God. 